Uh, when you want to have meaning in life, or, and of course everybody does, um, you, you have to have fruit to that meaning and not just words. People search for the meaning of life, and even if they think they know the meaning of life, if you have no fruit to that meaning, then your life uh, means nothing. Uh, so uh, one of the examples of this is uh, Mary and Martha in, in the Gospels. Uh, Martha is very famous for this, uh, being worried and bothered about too many things. That's what the Lord said to her, Martha, Martha. Now, you, you got to love how he says her name twice. It really means in, in that culture an emphasis on her. You're so worried and bothered about so many things. And Mary, her sister, who wasn't helping out with things around the house, but not that because she was lazy, it was because the Lord was there teaching and she sat at his feet and listened. And so Mary was concerned about the Lord. She was concerned about the word that was coming from the Lord. And in her mind, the other stuff could wait. And that's precisely right. Uh, Martha and Mary are both believers, and Martha had a harder time, a much harder time than Mary, disentangling herself from the affairs of life. And all of us have to do that. It's not that we don't take care of them. I know Mary was not some lazy woman. Uh, It's just that she had her priorities right. And all of us have to have our priorities right because we're in a world in which there is a very real purpose to rob our lives of the true meaning that they're supposed to have. There is a, a concerned, uh, concerted, I should say, effort to rob us of meaning. There is a very real um, uh, purpose and um, plan to uh, take from us that which we should experience, to infect us, to contaminate us with things that are not important. Uh, And so, fast forward sometime later, Mary, Martha's sister Mary, has bought, and this is probably about a year later, uh, Mary has bought a very expensive bottle of perfume, and she saved it to anoint the Lord with it just a few days before he died. And, and this, you know, this perfume, anybody could have done that. Anybody could have saved up their money even if they were poor. Certainly a rich person could have easily just bought it and used it on the Lord. But there's, there's a meaning to why Mary does this, which she displayed a year before when she listened to the Lord at his feet, is that she loved him more than she loved money. She loved him more than she loved pleasure. And so she used a year's worth of money to buy a particular perfume that she wanted to anoint the Lord with days before he died. And, you know, and and why does she do this? She does this because she loves him. She does this because she loves his word. And everything else is far less in importance than him. And this becomes a part of, and this is our theme for today, there is nothing more important in the age before Christ returns than bearing fruit. When when Mary anoints the Lord's feet, she's bearing fruit. 
And there's nothing more important than this. There's preparation to that fruit. Like I said, anybody could have bought perfume and anointed the Lord if, you know, in their hearts they thought, oh, I'll get famous. As Jesus said it, that Mary's, this act that Mary did for him would be known through the ages. And it is. Um, but say somebody did that and they say, well, I'll be famous or I'm doing it because the people are going to think I'm great or I'm humble or whatever. And, and that's just the world in disguise. That's the contamination, the contamination of pride, the contamination of uh, self-interest. And Mary didn't have that. And all of those years of loving the Lord culminates in that. And so her fruit comes from good soil. And that's what we're going to look at today. There's nothing more important in this age than bearing fruit. And this is what I mean this age, I mean before Christ comes back. And he's going to relate that to us today. So, let's open up in prayer. We'll go to uh, Matthew 13. And then we'll turn later to our main passage. Go to Matthew 13. And let's pray. Let's ask God to reveal to us the reality of the age that we're in, the reality of the importance of of fruit-bearing, the importance of our decisions and what we do uh, on a day-by-day basis, each of us, is so important that we do, and we do because we understand. So we turn to his word today, and let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for the revelation of your word that you have preserved for us. You have made us new through Jesus Christ our Lord. You have blessed us with the results of salvation, eternal life. The fact that we can call ourselves your children, that we can learn of you. And we know, Father, that you have sent your Son into the world to free the world to seek and save the lost. For those of us who have believed in him, we are saved. And you have opened up our hearts to the mysteries of this age. And therefore, we can know what life truly is. We can know what truth is, what life is. And it's not found in the world. It's only found in you. And so, Father, uh, as we pursue that, Please, Father, through your Spirit, open each of our hearts to, to the word that we will see today. And we will ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus speaks of an age of mystery, which he calls the kingdom of heaven. And, you know, we can think or imagine that we know what this is, uh, we have to be careful there because in Matthew 13, it is all parables. Uh, Fortunately, the Lord interprets two of these parables, and uh, from those two interpretations, we can gather the rest. Uh, And and there's a lot of difference uh, of opinion on what uh, what these parables mean. It makes sense. That, you know, because parables are full of imagery and, you know, people can, you know, um, interpret images the way that they think they should be. 
and some of, some people have preconceived notions, and so they interpret them that way. And basically, all we want to do is, and it's the same as true with any interpreting any passage, which is called hermeneutics, is that we're you know we're just after what the text states and who says it and to whom, uh, and that helps as well. And so we have the Lord here in the context, preaching about, he says, the kingdom of heaven is a mystery to some. And, and But what he means here by mystery is that in the Old Testament it wasn't revealed. Now, that doesn't mean that it's now a mystery because to the disciples, uh, they will understand this. He's going to say after he explains, and we assume that he explained all the parables to them. We can't imagine that he wouldn't have. That he's going to say to them, not here in Matthew, but I think in Mark, he, he says, do you understand all that, all what these are? And they say, yes. Um, and therefore, he would have explained them to him, to them. And just so we know, and I, this is a definition from an excellent book on the, the kingdom of God through the ages uh, by Alvin McLean. It's called The Greatness of the Kingdom. And speaking of Matthew 13, he says, this is a new phase of teaching which will, be prepare, which will be to prepare the disciples for his rejection, meaning Jesus' rejection, and also for the interregnum, which is a fancy word for a, a time between two periods. The interregnum here is the time between the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ, and that's all that it is. <clears throat> which will intervene between his death and his return from heaven in glory to establish the kingdom on earth. So this would include, this is not just the church, therefore. This would include the tribulation. Now, as Jesus is going to say in the parable of the wheat and the tares, that this judgment is going to come when he comes back. And the judgment that he speaks of is judgment into fire, and that doesn't, so we wonder, you know, is the rapture here in this passage? It is not. It is not mentioned. That doesn't mean that it's not real or that it's not true. It's just that Christ doesn't mention it here. What Christ is after here is the time between his first advent and the time that he comes back to establish his kingdom on earth. He does not establish his kingdom at the rapture of the church. And so believers in the rapture uh, would accept that. I am a believer in the rapture, in a pre-tribulational rapture. Uh, there's many Christians who are not. Uh, and we're going to deal with that coming up pretty soon, actually. But uh, the rapture is the idea that Christ is going to remove the church before this final judgment that's going to come upon the world. I don't mean, it's not the final, final judgment at the end of history, He's talking about the judgment at his second coming in which the unbelievers are going to be removed and judged by fire or baptized by fire. <clears throat> so we should understand here at the first time, and the reason why we're doing this is in 1 Thessalonians, Paul goes right into, sorry, 2 Thessalonians, Paul goes right into it immediately. That as the Thessalonians are increasing in faith and their love is superabounding, he commends them for it, he's thankful for them. And he says, now, in, in, as you endure all this suffering and these trials and, and the, you know, in this world that you're in, which we all do, 
that just remember Christ is coming back and you will get relief. And Christ is going, all the people who are hurting you and causing trouble for you and persecuting you are all going to be judged by Christ when he returns. And so Paul's going to say, and he, he builds on that, and then he says, now until that time, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And going back to you know what this age is about, or as the Lord states for us here, is that <clears throat> this is going to be an age of conflict, and this is promised. You know, when are things going to get better? You know, when are the politicians going to wisen up? It's not going to happen, like ever. Uh, here and there, you see pockets of. In, in history, you see pockets of fairness and freedom. Uh, in our nation, I think we had the best pocket, if we call it a pocket, we had the best pocket of that in the history of mankind for a while. But it never lasts. You know, we think we can get it back. It ain't going to come back, in my opinion. But it, I, I'm sure it ain't. And that... <clears throat> You know, it, it's why is that? Well, the Lord's going to describe it here. Um, there's all kinds of problems with the human race in our world. And those problems are not going to stop. In the midst of those problems are little pockets. There's pockets again. Why am I saying that word? In the midst of those problems, there are individual people, and I would say pockets, meaning individuals who have gathered together to make true churches. You know, not just a place of gathering where we, you know, people play bingo. I don't know if people play bingo in church anymore, but, uh, you know, not. I'm not talking about just gathering places where people are not truly worshiping Christ, but people who have gathered together who are worshiping Christ. And why do they do that? Because they're good soil, meaning they're of a certain type, they're faithful, they have faith, they have love, they have hope, like Paul describes of the Thessalonians, and they bear fruit. And so in the midst of a crazy world, which Christ says, it's going to be crazy until I come back, and I'm going to make it right, but it ain't going to be right until I come back, that you can be a garden. A garden that I have cultivated. That I, and in the midst of this, like, right, have you ever seen pictures of uh, where they have, like, they start gardens or something in the middle of a broken down neighborhood, like, uh, I don't know, like in Detroit or something, uh, or in a, you know, in a bad neighborhood, and it's all run down buildings with uh, plywood on the windows, and it's gray, and it's dirty, and someone starts a garden. It stands out, right? And that's what God wants us to be. And we're designed for it. But what we what we are looking at here, and we'll see, is something called eschatology. Uh, it comes from the Greek word eschatos, which means last. And so this is a study of the last days. And uh, in in a study of this, it's in this field of theology or doctrine that we're going to have the least degree of certainty when we're interpreting passages. And that's why in this field of eschatology, 
is where you have the most difference of interpretation. And you have the most Christians or theologians, pastors, whoever, are, are getting into fights about it or arguing about it or differing about it. <clears throat> and the reason is, is that God doesn't give us the detail that we would like. You know, that we would love to have, he doesn't give it to us. And that's why this field of the last days or the future is the most debated in terms of interpretation. But one of the comforting things to know is that there's a somewhat similar situation in in the Old Testament. For instance, in the Old Testament, there's no specific and explicit Uh, uh, teaching to the effect that the Messiah would have two advents. Is it specifically clear that the Messiah would come, die, resurrect, ascend, and then return and establish his kingdom? And from our vantage point in the future, with the New Testament at our hands, we can look back at those passages and say, well, you you see it here and here and here. There are hints of it. But if you were an Old Testament saint, this picture was cloudy. You know, they understood that the Messiah would suffer, but he would also be victorious. And this is why the disciples, when Christ told them that he was going to go to Jerusalem, suffer and die, they didn't believe it. In fact, Peter rejects rejects it outwardly. And, uh, and, uh, you know, it's where he says, get behind me, Satan. Uh, And so, uh, this should give us comfort. Uh, Same thing with the end days or the last days. There's many things that are hinted at, which hints we can see, some, but we don't know at all. Certainly not. And that's why there's great differences. What, What is foggy now, though? So, you know, once... In this age, we can look back at what was prophesied and go, well, of course. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a breaking point, and for instance, in Isaiah 61, where the Lord is, this is what he speaks of from the synagogue in his first message in Luke 4. He's saying that, uh, you know, I'm going to free the captives. I'm going to give sight to the blind. Uh, this is the day of the Lord. And then he stops. And he stops at a specific place in that prophecy which we can look back at and say, well, he stopped right before it talked about judgment because that's his second coming. And from our vantage point, we say, well, that's obvious. But if you were a Jew reading Isaiah, you wouldn't have seen that. You would have rolled right from salvation to judgment. It's in one line. It goes it, in one line in Isaiah. It goes from the, the ad, first advent of Christ to the second advent of Christ, which difference so far has been 2,000 years. They wouldn't have known that. And so here we are in the church thinking we've got it all figured out. When he's coming, who the Antichrist is, where he's from, um, you know, rapture, second coming, tribulation, we got them all in order, we know you know, when they're going to happen and all that. And there's a lot of fogginess to this. And we must be careful about interpreting things that we can't interpret. What we know. Now, when we're just like a New Testament saint can look back at the Old Testament and go, well, of course, when we're in eternity or after Christ returns, when the church is over, 
we're all going to look back and go, well, of course. But until that time, there's going to be some things that we have to uh, admit that we do not know. And that's important before you ever get into a study like this to know there's stuff that you don't know. Now, is the tribulation a mystery in the Old Testament? Absolutely not. In the Old Testament, a lot is written about the tribulational period of what we call the Great Tribulation. But also, neither was the kingdom of God a mystery. I mean, it was obvious that God was going to come and establish his kingdom. But what was a mystery is this, in, how's it, what's the word? In, this is a new word for me. Interregnum? I've never heard it before. I had to look it up. Um, that was a mystery. That there would be a first advent, a period of time, in which an age would come and what? What would happen? And this is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 13. And which our New Testament writers are going to expound upon. And we see in these parables that this age is going to be characterized. And now what we want to get from this is just the things that we can see. That's all. And uh, let's not, people get into, all right, so we're doing the parable of the sower, right? Who's the birds? Anyways, like, in my opinion, forget about who the birds are. It's just look at the parable. There's one message here in this parable, and it shows us what is the age, what this age is. And this age is going to be characterized by conflict. And also, in some cases, by victory. How many? I don't know. It seems to be a low percentage. But this, this age is going to be characterized by incredible conflict. I mean, think of world wars. I'm continuing to, to listen to Corey Ten Bounds. I've been calling her Boom. Her last name's Baum. Ten Baum. That's what they call her. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, the, the conflict that that family went through. Amazing. A Christian family, they stuck by their guns, they stuck by their faith. And it's amazing. It's inspiring, in fact. Even in the midst of that world, they bore fruit. They were a garden, a garden of God. So, for a few, there's going to be victory. And those are the faithful. This is what, we, this is what the whole age is about. That's my title to this message. That's what this whole age is about. The meaning of life is found in God's harvest. This age is about you and me being uh, that fruitful soil. So, the first three counts. So, we're in Matthew 13. We're going to look at the parable of the sower first. the faithful in this age are the ones who are, are good soil. It is an age of sowing, both the first two parables, the ones that Christ explains that are written out for us in the Scripture are both about sowing. <coughs> uh, and it is the fruit of the Spirit in which the faithful are committed to the obedience of God, to the obedience of His commandments. And I must say, and I always say this, of all God's will, Not just some, but all. Those who are fruitful do not choose to do some of God's will and neglect other parts of it. 
the, the parts that you neglect. Now, I'm not saying sinlessness, right? I'm talking about commitment. The parts that any Christian rejects of God's will, in other words, they willfully are going to give themselves to sin in certain areas, those are areas of contamination, which is going to make their soil unfruitful. It's not God didn't ask us to be sinless. He asked us to be faithfully committed to him in every area of life. And I know that's hard for it's hard for all of us to and it's hard for us to admit that. You know, I I was under teaching for a while in which you know it didn't matter. It didn't matter how committed you were, just that you kept hearing God's word and re, and, and confessing your sin. That's all you had to do. You know, your commitment didn't matter. And I thought, you know, I thought that would work. It doesn't work. You've got to be committed. That's faith. It's faith in every aspect of God's will. <clears throat> so in the first three, there's four categories in the parable of the sower. This is what Christ says about the parable of the sower in Mark. Mark 4.13, when they ask him to interpret it, he says, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? And therefore, it's, it's vital for us to understand the first one. Because from that, as Jesus states here, or intimates, that from it we will understand the rest of the parables. So he says in verse 18, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. So here we're reading his interpretation of it. <clears throat> so the birds are, who are the birds that snatch it away? Well, it's the evil one. That becomes clear. The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom the seed <coughs> was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word. And the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, deceitfulness of wealth, choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Now, I've read some ideas about what that hundred, sixty, thirty means. Uh, one, one guy that I respect very much says that he believes that as time would go on in the church that there would be less and less fruit produced. Um, it's a nice stab at it, but again, how could you know that your interpretation would be absolutely correct? Uh, so <clears throat> this is what this age is about. Right? It's, a, it's an age of sowing. It's God sowing his word. The seed is the word of God. That becomes clear. And there's a devil. You know, there's an adversary who is not... It's not that God is not in control of this adversary, the devil, the evil one. Of course he is. God has purposely done this. But of course he's not causing sin and he's not causing Satan to do what he does. But God has purposely done this. And this we must fully understand so that when we look at a messed up world that is causing us problems, we must understand that God has designed it. 
We should not complain against what God has done. All right, so hence God says, be thankful for everything. That was 1 Thessalonians 5. Give thanks for all things. Pray at all times. Pray without ceasing. So this is what this age is about. And we're in the midst of a world that wants to contaminate the soil. And the devil. The devil's behind this. He, and, and he's the God of this world, as Christ said. So did Paul write this, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Jesus said it in John 12, that the devil is the God of this world. He has power. He has ability. In Ephesians 6, he's the prince and the power of the air. Uh, in Ephesians 2 as well. <clears throat> and uh, that's Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 6, he prowls about, oh, that's 1 Peter 5. You know, the armor of God passage where there's the constant schemes of the devil who are trying to get at us, right? So these schemes, this prince of the power of the air, the one roaming about seeking someone to devour, this is the evil one who is throughout this world trying to contaminate your soil. And how is he going to contaminate it? Well, think of the things that are not mentioned here about this age. Governments. Not here. What kind of government? You know, constitutional republic, monarchy, oligarchy, tyranny, whatever. It's not here. Kingdoms are not here. Banking systems are not here. The global economy, presidential elections. <clears throat> they're not important. Not yet people get absorbed in them. Neither is the price of groceries or gas. That's not important. What is important are individuals being good soil. God is going to allow, and he has, to allow things to test us. As we've seen so many times that we should rejoice in our testing because it increases our faith as we go through various tests. This produces in us endurance. James 1, 2. So what's important are individuals being good soil. Those who are good soil will come together in churches and be lights to the world. Because when you're good soil, you know the value of agape love and fellowship of the body in which you use your spiritual gift to serve one another and glorify God. <clears throat> so don't be like Martha. Right? What is Martha? What's her issue? She's still absorbed and bothered by the affairs of the world. She can take care of that stuff later. It's not that we're not going to take care of it. It's just that there are things that are far more important. And if we have those priorities straight, <coughs> then we won't be worried and bothered about the affairs of this world. We'll also understand that God has purposed this. So who am I to try and control it? I'm not saying change it. If we, if we have the right to change things to make life better, we should. For our neighbors, for ourselves, increase our safety. You know, is there, there's nothing wrong with those things. But, of course, as we look to what is most important, it is the will of God. And we know that we can't control the world. We can't control the things that are going to happen in our lives. But if we follow the Lord in faith, hope, and love, God will make a garden of our lives. We'll be good soil. 
personality doesn't matter, your background doesn't matter, male or female doesn't matter, Jew or Greek doesn't matter. None of that matters anymore. There's no division here. The only division, the only division is those who have faith and those who don't. Those who are committed and those who are not. That's the only thing. <coughs> so what we have, the activity of the gospel. The activity of the devil against the gospel, that's the first one. Right, that's the first part, the birds that come and snatch the seed away. Rocky, and then on the rocky soil, or the, the soil that has no depth, there's affliction and persecution of the word. Then there's worries that, are, that the world puts forth to get us to worry. And, you know, this falls under many categories. I mean, what could I be worried about? I could be worried that I'm not going to get that thing or get that person. Or I could be worried about danger. Or I could be worried about being broke or whatever. Um, I could be worried about my health. I could be worried about the affairs of the world, current affairs. Uh, I could be worried about all kinds of things, the future. I could have a lust that I'm worried is not going to get fulfilled. There's all kinds of things we worry about. And then lastly, there's the deceitfulness of riches, the deceitful promises of riches. <clears throat> get rich and all your trouble will go away. Right? Get enough money and all your troubles will go away. It's a lie. And then in the next parable, Jesus shows us that this, con- this condition is going to continue until he returns. This is not going to end what we see here in terms of the devil's work against the gospel, which if you're one who's a light to the world giving the gospel to others, you are a special project of his to stop you. Right? So the activity of the devil against the gospel will mean that he's going to be against you. The affliction and persecution of the word. Worries that are going to be put upon you, they're going to be pressed upon you all the time. And... The deceitful promise of rich riches or wealth. Now look at the next, because this is still about sowing. So this is an age of sowing. Verse 24, Jesus presented to them another parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And what we find out here, some, it's, it's important, I think, I know, that you know, tares, when they're small, when they're not grown enough, tares look a lot like wheat, and they're hard to discern. And so this shows us, and it's backed up, as I read recently, you should never interpret anything under, out of a parable. You should never interpret anything out of a parable that isn't clearly taught in another part of Scripture. That's a great guide for interpreting parables. Because people can go crazy with parables because it's, it's all imagery. Uh, <clears throat> but tares look a lot like wheat, and this backs up other places in Scripture that Satan is a deceiver. He portrays himself as an angel of light in 2 Corinthians 11. His ministers are apostles of light. And so he 
shows himself. There's a counterfeiting system going on all throughout this age. Uh, the devil is counterfeiting the way of God and trying to deceive people with it. So, again, verse 26. Now, after things have grown, things become evident. This backs up what Jesus said, that you'll know them by their fruit. So, we can't discern, that every, we can't discern from everybody whether they're evil or not, or good or not, and we just have to wait. We have to wait till the fruit is born and then we'll know. So verse 26, but when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to them, Sir, <clears throat> did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. For while you are gathering up the tares, you might uproot the wheat with them. Some people have said, you know, why doesn't God, you know, is it possible that God can't uproot tares without tearing up wheat at the same time? In other words, that he can't take out an unbeliever without hurting a believer. That's a silly, right? God is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. He can do whatever he wants. This is just part of in the reality of agriculture, right? So Jesus is using the picture of the fact that if this were to happen in a real field, if you went out and tried to get rid of the tares, you would inevitably tear up wheat. So he's, the whole point of this is that Jesus is telling us that he's going to wait till the end of the age. But he said, no, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. So followed by the parable here. Now, moving on, and he, Jesus is going to interpret this for us, and we'll read that in a second. But we also have the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven that come after this, which speak of an incredible growth. The mustard seed is tiny. Within about a year, it grows into a huge tree, um, or more bush-like, but it grows to like 10 feet high or something. So it's, it's a depiction of something that starts off small and grows rapidly. And the church has definitely done that. Same with the leaven. The parable of the leaven is not bad leaven in this case, but it's leaven that just expands itself from within throughout all the, all the dough. And so Jesus here is depicting an incredibly fast growth growing from within. And the church would grow this way. By the time Constantine the Great would say that Christianity was legal in 311 A.D., it is estimated that 40% of the population was Christian. 40% of the population of the Roman Empire were all Christian. That happened in less than 300 years. It went from a few hundred, maybe a thousand, to hundreds of thousands of people rapidly. But you know what also increased here? Because this kingdom that Jesus is speaking about has wheat and tares, isn't it? The Lord's field here, which has been contaminated by tares, looks like the whole world. And the population of the world has greatly increased. So the number of tares have increased as well as the members of the church. 
All right, so um, verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And the disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And the goods and for the good seed, these as sorry, and as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who has sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. Alright, so when does this happen? I, this is the second coming of Christ. The Son of Man will send forth his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So this is after the tribulation. This is the second coming of Christ. And that's when this judgment will come. So since we know this judgment is coming, how should we look at our enemies? How should we look at those who are enemies of the word, enemies of the gospel? Notice the judgment here. It's awful. This is not some slap on the wrist. This is the lake of fire. And so rather than hate our enemies, rather than despise our enemies, we should love them, we should pity them, we should pray for them. And as we saw with love, we should endure for them, despite the persecutions that they themselves may even bring against us. You know, what is their end here? Should we rejoice in that? But what we should rejoice in the fact is that we don't have to get vengeance against people. We don't. And it is promised that this age will be an age of conflict. Satan is not going to stop sowing tares to deceive the faithful, to deceive the unbeliever, to snatch up the gospel, to cause people to be worried. He works diligently at it, night and day. To cause people to want riches, to cause people to be worried, to cause the word to be persecuted and Christians to be persecuted. So go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Now we could roll into the other parables, but time does not allow. We we will. We'll we'll get back to them. Um, We have in these parables too the fact that God is going to preserve the church. That's likely the pearl. Pearl of great prize is the church. Uh, Also that God is going to preserve Israel. Israel survives this age. Right, and you see all the anti-Semitism, the, the Holocaust, uh, all of that that's been designed. You say, you know, why this little group of people? They're less than 1% of the population of the world. Why would they be so persecuted everywhere? And that's because of this. Satan is sowing, and he has been sowing. He wants to destroy Israel. And Jesus says, I'm going to preserve them through this age while he's not even here. 
He's going to use the church. He's going to use Christians to do it. But he's going to do it in many ways, not just not just through Christians. So in the midst of this age, we are to be those who bear fruit. 2 Thessalonians 1.3 We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. Right? This is their fruit. I can't stress it enough. They've been saved for a few months. They have fruit already. They're good soil. These Thessalonians. Right? The Corinthians were like the saddest soil there was, right? Like saved, they're saved, but they're growing nothing. Because their soil was all contaminated with selfishness, with lust, with immorality, with strife, with jealousy, with no uh, no love. You know, what what are the, the things that are going to be the fertilizer for this soil? Is our faith. It's just what they have here. They have faith. They have love. They have hope. Their faith looks to the future and trusts the Lord. So they look to the future with joy. And it, even though, look at verse 4, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions with which you endure. And they do. Paul is privy to this. He, under, he knows this. He's not just guessing. He has the uh, eyewitness account of uh, Timothy that he sent to them to get a report to see how they were doing. He knew what was happening there. And he knew, he's writing this from Corinth, he knew what they were going through. And he said, we're, you've done it so well in the midst of this persecution that we actually boast. Speak proudly is a word for uh, for boasting. They boast of you among the churches of God. That you should see what those Thessalonians are doing. He's using them as an example to other Christians, to other churches. And notice the affliction. Why the affliction? Jesus promised us it would be this way. Yeah, we say, why the affliction? We can say, well, people are dumb. People don't get it. They reject the Lord, all of that. And that's all true. But really, the ultimate reason is God has designed it this way. And I don't know how to untangle that knot with the sovereign will of God and the free will of man when God wills all men to be saved and come to a full knowledge of the truth and all of that. I can't untangle that. Nobody can. But what we do know is that God has purposely done this. So when you see... I truly, I've said this before that I don't read the news much anymore. It's gotten less and less that I look at it. It's so ridiculous. I think it's worse than it was just a few months ago. You know, when I just poke around at some of the sites that I used to read. And, you know, it's just bizarre. But, so life in this age between his advent are just the way Christ said it would be. Right, as Paul is writing to the Thessalonians here, it's, say, roughly about 15 years after Christ spoke those parables. And it is just 
what he said it would be. And it happened rapidly. Right? Just really early on in the church, the persecution comes right away. Uh, so during this age, the behavior, uh, while judgment is in the future, during this age, judgment is in the future, and the behavior of the flesh is proof that God's coming judgment is righteous. Right? When we wonder, you know, when God is going to judge sin and evil, is it just? I mean, is evil really all that bad? And as we get older and more experienced and we start to see the world around us, we've seen the effects of sin and evil in our own lives, correct? That's probably where we know it most. How it has hurt us. How we've hurt others. By our own sin. And with that experience, we would say, well, you know, is the judgment of God on sin proper? And it most definitely is. Now, we know all sin has been judged on the cross, but God does speak here of the unbeliever, the ones who do not obey his, the gospel, who don't believe in the gospel, who don't know God. And in, in multiple places throughout the scripture, he speaks of them in terms of their sin. And he, in this case, it's the fact that they're persecuting those who are following the word of God. And for no other reason. Right? These Thessalonian believers who are being persecuted are the neighbors and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles, cousins. Well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to run through the whole family tree here, but you know, they're relatives and friends and neighbors of people that they got along with smashingly before. What's the difference? Are they like horrible people now? They're better than they've ever been. Now, it, it was actually, when, it, when Christianity became legal in the Roman Empire after multiple persecutions against the church, the, the emperors uh, and others who, who wanted to, you know, consider what Christians should they be allowed to worship the way that they do. One thing that they knew is that Christians made good citizens. Right? They didn't rebel. They took the words of Paul, obey the king. They took it seriously. In Romans 13, fear God, obey the king. They did. You know, the Romans were like, you know, they're not that bad. They were far better. They, never re they didn't rebel. They followed the law. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, when, when we see, when we truly see what were they persecuted for? What were the Thessalonians persecuted for? Just being Christian. And so verse 5, 2 Thessalonians 1.5, this is plain indication. This word plain indication means proof. The Greek word means proof. This, what, what's the this? Is the work of evil against them. This is a plain indication or proof of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. What are you suffering for? The kingdom of God. This is exactly what Jesus said would happen. The kingdom of God would be persecuted. <clears throat> and what Paul here now in verses 5 through 10 is going to explain to them and comfort them with is that judgment 
comes at the end of this age. And that's uh, Michelangelo's painting in the Sistine Chapel about the Last Judgment. Uh, I remember I, I read about this painting some time ago, and sorry I didn't bone up on it, but uh, there you have it. You can't really see it all that well from this distance anyway. But there's a lot going on. There's saints being saved. There's those being judged. They don't look so good. There's a guy at the bottom of the boat where he's, he's taking the doomed, you know, t- across the, I forget the name of the river. It's not the sticks. That's that's a wrong religion. But, uh, yeah, it's, you know, and, and off they're going to. You, you could check it out. Go online. It's a brilliant, brilliant painting. Um, it is not. I'm, I'm, it's not the one that he painted. There was a painting in the Sistine Chapel that Michelangelo did that later on they went around and painted underwear on all the naked people because they were, they did. This is true. They they, they, they got some guy to paint underwear on to cover up all their, their naughty bits. So there you have it. Um, now, we live in a world that's unhappy, shallow, unfulfilled, incapable of love, and we know how to get them out of that. Because God has gotten us out of it. We know that the judgment upon them, if it comes, if they don't become believers, it's just. It's just. God's judgment is righteous. He says it here. It's clear, it's plain. But Christ told us, you're the light of the world. Now, you can see so much more clearly if you see this as this age of sowing in which there's the devil doing his thing and trying to deceive and trying to infect people's hearts with sin and with evil. And people are. They're infected by it. We've all been infected by it. And Christ has set us free. We're the light of the world. And Jesus said there in Matthew 5, the light of the world, people are going to see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. (coughs) What are those good works? That's our fruit. The fruitful soil. So as I said at the beginning, we could know the meaning of life. You could be a Christian who absolutely knows the meaning of life. But do we live the meaning of life? Do we by faith put our heart and soul into this? What is more important in life? Is the government more important? Is money? Is it the things that I'm worried about? Is it all these things that I need to work out that I think are going to make me happy? How easily do we all fall into it? Like, how easily when... You have plans. Let's say you got plans to do something. You got a vacation coming up. Excited about it, as you should be. And then something comes and interrupts it. Right? And you can't go. Whatever. Bad news. The world's getting worse. And it is. You know, that's another part of the they, they would tell us in the New Testament that the world they didn't promise apostasy because apostasy has always been. They said it would increase rapidly. 
And we look. We say, is it now? I mean, it looks like it's increasing rapidly, but rapidly is a relative term. Is it rapidly enough? None of us know the day or the hour. The coming of Christ is imminent. We don't know. But one thing we do know is that to all those unhappy, shallow, unfulfilled, incapable of love people out there, that you and I have the keys to the kingdom. And we know how they can get in and become soil that is no longer worried, no longer uh, afraid, no longer lusting after things that they can't have, which makes them miserable, but actually truly free. That is this age. Don't be a Martha. Be a Mary. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the uh, privilege, Father, of having the words of our very Lord before our eyes. The letters of Paul. The very real history of a, a great group of Christians in Thessalonica. We're so grateful, Father, that you have preserved all of this so that we can Look to it, and by your Spirit, be changed. We thank you that you have made us who you have made us to be. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.